Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of God. Good afternoon. You know, uh, this week has been a week full of traditions. My family has a smaller tradition that we do more regularly, a small tradition of sharing our lives around the dinner table. And so usually someone, like usually my wife, will ask, so what was your rose? What was your thorn? And what's your bud? So what's your rose? What was a high or positive, something that you could really be thankful for today? What's your thorn? What, what didn't you like? What was painful? What was annoying? And then what's your bud? Something that's yet to come. What's still growing? What, what are you looking forward to? And so the last question, we usually answer something that we're looking forward to over the next 24 hours or so. Oh, tomorrow I'm looking forward to... And occasionally someone may get really excited over an upcoming birthday or a holiday, and then they'll start really, really thinking ahead. And so I'm really looking forward to something in a couple of weeks from now. Well, today marks the beginning of the Advent season, which is a season of waiting and hope and anticipation of the arrival of Jesus. So over the next four weeks, over the next month or so, as we move towards Christmas, as a church, we'll be meditating on what and who we are looking forward to. And particularly, we'll be looking to that from the perspective of Isaiah, the prophet. So this series over the next month is titled, The Gospel According to Isaiah, because we'll see through his prophecies that the people of God were also looking forward to Jesus' coming almost 700 years before he was actually born. And so today, we'll start off, uh, we'll have some select passages from Isaiah. We'll see the bigger picture, a grand vision of God's kingdom come. And so we're left to wonder, what can we hope for right now? What are we looking forward to in this season of Advent? In other words, what's your bud? And it needs to be more than just kind of the commercialized Christmas holiday stuff. 
There's a deeper longing, something much more important than that, that we must look forward to. So as we look at Isaiah chapter 2, we'll kind of be tackling through two, two main questions. Since this prophecy, Isaiah lived and prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus was born. First we'll see, what did Israel, the people of God and Judah, look forward to back then? So back then, hundreds of years before Jesus actually came about, what were they looking forward to? What was their perspective? And the second part is, what do we look forward to today? And we'll seek to answer these questions. So first, what did the people of God look forward to back then? Back then. And as some of you just read in Isaiah chapter 2, we receive this vision through Isaiah. I'm going to reread it for us and then um, help us kind of look, look at this prophecy more carefully. I'll read verses 1 and 2. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So specifically the the kingdom of Judah and Israel, right? They were separated by civil war. So Judah and the holy city of Jerusalem. It says in verse 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Now what does that mean? If you see here, it says, in the latter days. So sometime in the future. We don't know exactly when. They didn't know, but sometime in the end, sometime in the way future, in the latter days, it says, the mountain of the house of the Lord. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of all the mountains. So the house of the Lord being a place of worship by the temple So somehow the temple, the place where the people are supposed to worship God, is on this mountain, and it's going to be higher than any other mountain. Now, why is it important? Because hills, the mountains, these are physical places where people, historically, they would actually go to because because it was so high and close to the sky, closer to the sky, right? They would have these temples and idols, and that's where they would actually gather to worship. So the mountains were places of worship. So whenever you see mountains, hills in the Bible, that's where people went to worship. A lot of important things happened on mountains if you look throughout the Bible. If you remember in the call to worship from the Psalms 121, or maybe you know this, it says, I I look to the hills, and where does my help come from? It's not just looking at like picturesque, like sound of music hills. Oh, so beautiful, right? It's not that. It's not talking about I look to all these other gods and all these other places of worship that all these other idols are on. Is my help coming from these gods? No, but I look to God, the one true God, the Lord God of Israel. Does that make sense? And then so, in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, lifted up above the hills, meaning lifted up above all the other places of worship, that people would worship all these other gods, have all these other idols. It will be above all of that. So God would really be known and seen and worshipped as the one true God above all other gods, above all other idols. And it says all the nations, all the nations 
shall flow to it. Strange image, right? Water flows down. But somehow, in this magnificent mountain of the Lord, there's a supernatural attraction. The nations will flow up to the mountain, towards God, to worship him. Let's continue on in verse 3. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So many peoples, all kinds of peoples from all nations shall come, and they'll say with a willing heart, Come, let us go. They're not being forced. They're not being manipulated. They're saying, come, let's go because we want to. There's a willingness, a desire to go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. When it says God of Jacob, specifically the God of Jacob, the one true God, not these all, all these other gods, that they were at some point, they were worshiping. At some point, all these peoples and all these nations had their own gods, and so, in brackets, it should probably really say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the one true God, the God of Jacob, that God of Jacob of Israel who freed his people from Egypt, that God, we're going to go to that God. We're going to leave our gods that we're used to, that we grew up with, behind. Our way of life, we're going to leave that behind on that hill, and we're going to go up to the mountain of the Lord that is above every other hill and mountain to the one true God. That's where we're going to go. Come, let's go. Because this God, he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. It says, for out of Zion, the holy city of Jerusalem, this renewed holy city of now called Zion shall go forth the law. How does the law go forth? The law goes forth. Because as the nations go up the mountain, they're taught and they learn from God and his ways. They go back down the mountain. You can't live on the mountain, right? You go back down the mountain and you live out in obedience to God's laws. That's how the word goes forth. Is when the people of God obey God and his ways. Instead of all the other old ways that they used to live and worship by on their hills. You continue on in verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. God will be the perfect judge between the nations. There will be no weird rules or Corruption or fouls, right? We've been seeing that a little bit in the World Cup this past week. No. When these nations gather in this place, God will be the perfect, righteous judge. And instead of warring against each other, these nations, over all kinds of conflicts, especially over land, especially over their own ways that they want to impose on each other, over greed, it says they're going to get their instruments. Do you see that? The swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Instead of warfare, these pruning hooks, 
Tasha, what is that? Agriculture, farmers. So instead of destruction, it says now these people will live not only in peace with, with God and with one another, but they'll now be cultivators of life. They'll be like these gardeners in a renewed creation on God's earth. And lastly, in verse 5, we see, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So not only do we see these, the nations, all nations come streaming up, attracted to the mountain of the house of the Lord, leaving their ways behind. They also say, O house of Jacob, specifically you, the chosen people, nation of Israel, that God chose, house of Jacob, come, you also, specifically, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. We're children and sons of the light, so let's walk in the light of the Lord. So we see that this grand vision, this huge vision Isaiah has, is of some glorious and amazing future. And this image is something that hasn't quite happened yet. Remember, this is just Isaiah chapter 2. There's like 60 chapters in Isaiah. Hundreds of years of just strife and warfare before Jesus arrives. And so it's painting this glorious and amazing vision of a future that hasn't happened yet. But a future reality which God does intend to bring about and is working towards. So I think we need to ask a clarifying question. Why does God give Isaiah, in the the beginning of his prophecies, this grand vision? How do we get here? Why does God give Isaiah this vision specifically about Judah and Jerusalem? Why was this the vision that they were looking forward to? In the very next verse, if if you were to read in verse 6, because the house of Jacob, the nation that was chosen to be the light and to represent God and his ways, were not living according to God's ways. They were enmeshed in idolatry. Instead of being on the mountain of the house of the Lord, they had actually kind of stooped down. They had actually gone down to the other hills and mountains and said, hey, God, what other gods are you worshiping down here? I think we'll just kind of along and we'll just kind of worship with you guys. And they forget about God. They reject God. Look at what, so we're going to kind of go back one chapter for this context. In Isaiah chapter 1, we see God actually intervened. He sees this and he steps in and he says this to his people. In chapter 1, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So God gives this vision because when he sees the current reality of his people, they are far from him. They are not at the mountain of the house of the Lord. They are on like every other hill instead. And sure enough, due to the rejecting of God, the nation of Judah has been facing God's judgment. So on top of their own inner sinfulness, right, we also live in the reality of this external suffering. And in verse 7 in chapter 1, God describes that. He sees that too. It's like, I see your heart. Your heart is far from me. And I also see 
that as a result of humanity's sinfulness in verse 7, your country, your whole land, your way of life lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. So not only is the nation of God like struggling with their own sinfulness and wayward ways and they've kind of rejected and estranged themselves from God, but they're also, they're also facing just real suffering, suffering at the hands of foreign enemies. Their way of life, their land is being threatened. It's to the point where even if they try to kind of help themselves, it's not just internal reforms that's needed. It's not just a, a domestic agenda that's needed, but they need to now deal with foreign and external threats and suffering. So there's not only a sinfulness, but also a suffering in this broken and fallen society. And so God, God, he, he, he invites Judah to leave this behind Because his people, even as they try to worship, and we'll see this throughout kind of the letters of Isaiah, even as they try to kind of do what's right, even if they go through the forms of worship, this, look, look at what God says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15. When you spread out your hands, like trying to worship, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen, because your hands are full of blood. It's like, listen, it's like you can't just come be kind of married to all these other idols and all this way of life and your sinfulness, pretend it didn't even happen, and then come to me and say, God, can you listen to us? It doesn't work like that. Our relationship is not right. There needs to be like, some acknowledgement of repentance. So God invites and calls his people to repent. In the very next verses, in chapter 1, verse 16, 17, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. So put off what is evil, and now put on what is good. And what is good? Doing good is seeking justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. These are things that they were not doing, neglecting to do. And here's kind of the surprising thing. Almost as like a, like a corrective, almost like a counter, as a, as a way of bolstering what we see in verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. But can they? And in verse 18, God offers his forgiveness to his people. The Lord says this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like woe. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, as in you don't repent, you shall be eaten by the sword. You'll continue on in this path of destruction. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
Do you see this glimmer of hope that God has for his people? He sees very accurately what is broken and what's wrong in the hearts and the land of his people. He sees the evil. He sees the suffering. He sees the sin for what it is. And he says, there needs to be repentance. And at the same time, I, the Lord your God, I'm going to cleanse you. Your sins will be no more. I'm going to wash you. Isn't that the good news? I think it's incredible and something maybe I think we need to be careful not to take for granted. Because it happens commonly in the Bible, we can't take it for granted. I think what's incredible is that while the people of God are living in sin and suffering, it is God who initiates. Did you catch that? It says, and God spoke to his people. The word of God came down to his people. That's where the good news starts, doesn't it? God speaks to his people. He starts it. He initiates. He takes that first step. He does not leave his people alone because his people are tied to him by this covenantal promised relationship that because of God's faithfulness is unbreakable because God is faithful, even though they might not be. Because of his God's steadfast, unfailing love, God doesn't just let his people alone. He comes and he speaks and he says, come back. This is the context of the greater big vision that Isaiah receives in chapter 2. So we return to that vision. What did the nation of Judah and Israel look forward to all those years ago? Simply, God's salvation. God's salvation, what did that entail? True restoration of worship. Leaving behind their idols and gods of their own making. And not only overcoming their foreign enemies, but somehow this vision includes their foreign enemies also laying down their instruments of war and their own idols. And somehow joining now Israel in worshiping God. It's like even better, right? It's not just their own salvation, but it's for the, for the nations. And they worship God. And salvation looks like a true worship of God. Salvation looks like learning God's ways and going forth and living out his ways in willing obedience with renewed hearts, a renewed humanity. And so the broken and sinful, suffering people of God, what they were looking forward to is God's salvation. They needed to repent. And they also needed rescue and restoration from God in a way that only God could bring about. They could not save themselves. Now, as we're looking forward to this, a brief note on prophecies. Because these prophecies throughout the Bible, especially as we look through the book of Isaiah over the next month, these prophecies you'll see, they come in bits and pieces. It's not like a super cohesive, like, 
well, at least when you first read it, it doesn't appear to be very cohesive and tightly bound together. It's just like enough detail to be like, okay, we can refer back to that, but it's not specific enough where apparently many people, even when Jesus arrived, they kind of seemed to miss the details. They're like, they, they couldn't really see God himself in front of them when he was in the flesh. They kind of missed that. So that's how kind of prophecies kind of functioned, right? And even when we read the prophecy, I don't know how many of us have read and have really like deeply learned the prophecy, prophetic stuff in the Bible. It's tough, right? A lot of different imageries. It's kind of more poetic, a lot of symbolism, and it's tough to kind of decipher. And so they're kind of like shadows. They function more like shadows, and I think that that's, that's going to be useful. It's like, so if you were, this is how a shadow functions. If you were kind of rounding a corner, and then you happen to see a shadow from that corner, you could kind of make out a little bit, oh, I think that's a person coming around the corner, right? Just by the shadow. So you know that's a person. It's coming. So something is coming. Something of a person nature is coming. So I can tell, yes. But we don't know what kind of person that is. We don't know the color of their hair. We don't know what they're wearing. We don't know how tall or short. We don't know those kind of, that level of detail. But you see there is a person coming for sure. So prophecies kind of function like that. They're kind of enough detail just to be like, oh, that's a shadow. That's, there's something coming that looks like that, but I don't know exactly when, what, or how. Like that part is not very clear. Sometimes it is, but when it comes to these passages in Isaiah, not that clear. So even this grand vision that God gives in Isaiah chapter 2, that the nations will flow to the mountains of the whole, they're going to beat their swords into plowshares and pruning hooks, sounds amazing. We don't know when. when. When is this? Oh, in the latter days. When? In the latter days. A shadow, right? And this vision now, what the good news about shadows is, it does come a little more clear and clear. Because even, let's just say, imagine the person ran in the corner. First, that shadow is really long and ambiguous. But then as it get closer and closer, it does get a little clearer. And that's what we'll see also as we go through the season of Advent. This God, God's plan of salvation that the people of God are so looking forward to. While they might not have known it exactly, they only saw a shadow of this vision. It was centered on Jesus. And so this vision... It's not just for Judah and Jerusalem and Israel a couple thousand years ago, but this vision is also for us today. This word that Isaiah receives is not only limited to, 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 to them, but all the nations will be drawn to God in God's holy city of Zion. This vision goes all through the prophets, the gospels, and even to Revelation. This picture that God gives to his people is the grand big picture of God's salvation and how he's going to restore all things. That's what we're looking forward to. So what, what do we look forward to today? That, that question for us today. What do we look forward to in the 21st century, here, now? We continue looking forward to Jesus, who is the Savior of the world. We continue looking forward to Jesus, the Savior of the world. Because when Jesus arrived 2,000 years ago, his first coming, what we celebrate in Christmas, he starts to give much more than just a shadow. 
Jesus gives us a real sneak peek and preview of God himself and his heavenly kingdom. And we'll see here, he makes that abundantly clear. See, Jesus, he is the point. He is that point, that pinnacle on the mountain of the house of the Lord, that attracting thing, that object, is Jesus. Jesus came to perfectly fulfill what the prophets were talking about and hinting at. Jesus is that center. Jesus is the one who is exalted and lifted high on this mountain of the Lord that Isaiah sees. And we see this vision of Isaiah come more alive and get sharpened, particularly in the Gospel of John. So do you remember Jesus goes to the holy temple, house of the Lord, on a hill in Jerusalem, right? All these images are important. And what does he do? Do you remember? He starts cleaning house. He starts cleansing the temple. He starts flipping tables, right, kicking over stuff. He starts driving out. And he's like, I'm going to clean out this temple. And he's cleaning and restoring, restoring, right, the temple. Stop this evil deed. We're going to put on righteousness. So in John chapter 2, fast forward when Jesus has arrived. In John chapter 2, the Jews say to him, what signs do you give us? For doing all this stuff. Like, who are you to come in and upend our way of doing things? And Jesus answered them, what? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then Jesus said, like, this temple took 46 years to build. Pretty sure you can't do that. But Jesus was really speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture, a.k.a. the prophets, a.k.a. Isaiah. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus identifies them. He's saying now, you know that mountain, that mountain of the Lord where the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is? It's not this temple of wood and stone. Jesus identifies him. I am that temple that will be raised up. He is the object and focus of worship. Then continuing on, shortly before Jesus would be crucified for the sins of the world, he enters the holy city of Jerusalem again. And he speaks to those around him in John chapter 12. And to those around him, he declares, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That's a direct reference to Isaiah 2. The mountain of the house of the Lord and all nations will flow to it. When Jesus is lifted up from the earth, he will draw all people to himself. Jesus said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. We see even... He's saying, when I am now lifted up on that cross, somehow this act of the Son of God being crucified on the cross, somehow this, the mystery of the cross, is somehow the cross to be an act of salvation, not one of defeat. The cross, the Savior on the cross will be the thing that draws all people to God himself. 
So in the same breath, he says, walk while you have the light, unless darkness overtake you. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Remember? It says, O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Right? He is inviting the people to do the same. These are not necessarily new words. Now he's trying to give clarity and more details to the shadows that Isaiah saw. I have come into the world as light. So he's not just saying just general lightness and darkness. Now Jesus is saying, I am that light. To make it even more clear, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus invites all, invites you, invites us today to put our faith and trust in him, to believe in Jesus, to leave those things on the hills behind, the things that we are so caught up in that we think are so important, will give us so much value, but in the end, so disappointing. And instead of spinning our wheels, he says, look to me, I am that light. Believe in me so that you may not remain in darkness. And we see years later, the Apostle Paul, he kind of summarizes all these truths by quoting a song that the early church used to sing. And he says in Philippians chapter 2, he says this, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he is God himself, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So his godness, his loftiness, he's up here. Where he said, I'm not going to exploit this position. But instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That is Christmas, right? And being found in human form, he humbled himself. He was high, and yet he lowered himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a humiliating death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, every other mountain, every other hill, every other way, every other empty promise, every other God, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That all nations would now stream up to the mountain of the house of the Lord and give him the due praise and worship. The good news of Advent season, of Christmas, is that God, who is exalted and worthy of all worship, above all other gods, of all nations, God himself, instead of saying, you come up here, he said, I'll come down to us in the form of a servant. The good news is that God draws near to us. And that's the first coming that we're celebrating in Christmas. And the way that's even possible for the nations to fill up this house and mountain of the Lord is that Jesus' body was destroyed. He lowered himself to even a humiliating death on the cross. And somehow this cross was God's mysterious and marvelous plan that Jesus was simultaneously lowered and lifted up at the same time, drawing all people to himself for salvation. 
So in the latter days, the days have not yet happened. Jesus will come again. Jesus will come again. He'll be lifted up once more, and all the nations will be drawn to worship him. We have seen glimpses of this happen throughout the centuries, right? That there are many more nations now who worship and know Jesus outside of Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. And we see that the salvation that started with the Jews, the law of the Lord has now gone forth out of Zion, down this mountain, and have spread to many nations. We have seen glimpses of this. The shadows become much more real. So in Advent, we don't only look back 2,000 years ago when Jesus first came and his first arrival. Yes, we remember that. We commemorate this. This is important. But the big vision that's given to us in the beginning that we're kind of zooming out and seeing the big picture, we don't only look back at Jesus' first arrival. Like Isaiah, we continue to look forward to the day when Jesus will return. He'll come again. The true temple of the Lord, whom all nations will glorify and worship and adore. We continue looking forward to Jesus, who's the Savior of the world. He's like that true bud that we can look forward to still. So in the meantime, for us, how can we approach this season of Advent? Um, I don't know about you, but um, I was kind of remarking to my wife, maybe because it's unseasonably warm, we're kind of, we keep saying, like, it doesn't feel like Christmas yet. Right? It's Advent already. It doesn't feel like it. Right? It's not cold enough. We just got over. We still have Thanksgiving leftovers in our fridge. Like, we didn't even, it's not even fully, right, complete Thanksgiving yet, right? And so we don't have to wait for a feeling. We don't have to wait for snow. We don't have to wait for, you know, Mariah Carey to, like, take over and dominate with her sound. Like, we don't have to wait for that, right? But the posture that we can take right now in this Advent season, what can we be reminded of? I think there's maybe two postures we can take. The first one we can acknowledge, we can pray for the real brokenness in our lives and in larger society. Remember, God came down and he spoke and he met his people while they were broken, while they were suffering. It's not like he waited for them to oh, get a little bit better, a little bit more worthy, and then, okay, I guess I'll come now because You've calmed down now. You're in a better place now. No. One posture I think that is important for us to take is we fully acknowledge the real brokenness in our lives and in society. Our own sin and also just our own real suffering. Maybe things that are, we're just not necessarily responsible for. Things that are just happening to us the real grief and suffering that we're experiencing in a fallen world. And when we acknowledge that, when we pray for that in this Advent season, we're saying, God, we need rescue. We need forgiveness. We need restoration because all this is really messed up. This is beyond what I think I can repair. I'm at the end of my rope. And in the Advent season, in a way, it is appropriate for us to actually hold that truth honestly and realistically. The second posture then is, so we put our hope fully. 
not in the work of our own hands or human institutions, but in Jesus. In Jesus. We put our hope in Jesus, who is the light of the world, the house of the Lord, the Holy One who is lifted high above any other gods and hills, the Savior who has this ability to draw all people to himself, the suffering servant who brings about forgiveness of sins, who, who says he will cleanse away. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be washed in white as snow. This Jesus who is the hope and glory of all nations, the one who brings true peace and the restoration of all things. So we hold those two truths, the reality of our sin and suffering. Therefore, we look at that and say, come Lord Jesus, we put our hope in you once more. So this Advent season, more than all the Christmas other kind of maybe commercialized traditions we're used to, I think kind of the heartbeat of the season is saying, Lord, we continue looking forward to you, Lord Jesus. You are the Savior of the world. Can I invite us then, um, just as we close this portion of our worship service, we'll have an opportunity to respond uh, through communion and song and prayer. Um, Can I invite us uh, just to kind of put that into practice? Kind of wrote out a a prayer for us. I was hoping that we could, uh, if you do feel comfortable, you could read aloud together in one voice. And it kind of does those two things. We, we confess our own neediness, our brokenness, our own suffering, our own neediness of God. And we're putting our hope in Jesus. And so can I invite us, um, can we read this prayer together? Let's pray this together as God's people, his church. Ready? King Jesus, you are the light of the world. You call us out of darkness into your marvelous light. For all those who believe in you, you cleanse us of our sins. We forsake all other idols and turn to you once more. Captivate us with your majesty. Restore our worship to you. Renew our hearts that we may hope in you and your salvation alone. Comfort us in our suffering and loss. Heal our society. Reconcile all peoples to you and with one another. Jesus, we look forward to your glorious return. Keep us that we may walk as children of light until your kingdom come. So, Lord, this is our prayer to you. We need you, God. And we continue looking forward to you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that it's not just hoping for you, but you left your Holy Spirit who is now with us. So that we are not alone. You're still with us. So grant us this hope. Renew our hearts today. We turn to you in Jesus' name.